back to the bin. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It... No, no, welcome to Back to the Bins. God, I just can't even remember what shows I'm doing anymore. <laughs> I'm Paul Spataro, and I am not joined by Scott or Bill, both of whom are otherwise uh, occupied this evening. And I put out the uh, call for somebody to join me, and I almost feel like in uh, in Lord of the Rings when they light the uh, they light those pyres and see if somebody will call mm-hmm. will heed the call. Yes. So I, I, I lit the pyre, and Luke, Jack, and Eddie he, had the, heeded the call for me and prepped a book and did everything I could possibly ask. Welcome aboard once again, Luke. It's been a little while since we got to talk. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think the last time I think I was on was, on Back to the Bins was uh, we did the Luke Cage uh, score episode. Yes. Um, that's, that's, so that's been a bit of that's been a while. That's got to be about a year ago, maybe. Yeah. And then I did do, um, and, and I think the other time, right around then was uh assistant editors month where i did it with um gene hendrix and professor allen right where and you uh, and i and and jay have had a chance to do a couple of is it yours episodes yes <laughs> one of which was has been sitting in the can forever and i know it's, <laughs> i know you're finding it frustrating but uh, uh, I, I just i just assume that there's must be something terribly terribly wrong with the recording if it's you know, <laughs> like, all, oh it's, jesus luke's i had to edit all these things luke said out of this how am i ever going to do this and make it, this salvageable <laughs> it was it was edited pretty soon after we finished recording it uh thankfully i got a, i've got a nice lead time on those and then what happens is things get bumped because of current events for example, right. uh, as we record this, uh, it was supposed to go up tomorrow, but it's getting pushed back another two weeks because tomorrow I'm putting up the Last Jedi. Ah, yes, well. So you know, I, I, it gets bumped in order to keep some other things timely, and it also got bumped because of Christmas and Thanksgiving specials. So, you know, I, I apologize for the delay. <laughs> But but it, it it is next in the rotation as long as nothing comes out between right. now and then that bumps it for some reason. Yeah, it's 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 like the old there's a there's a, a a legend that back in the old days of IBM, like in the '60s and '70s, that they had a priority based print queue, and supposedly there's an old computer science uh, story that I heard from a professor as an undergrad that supposedly some poor guy had his print job in the queue for like two years. Because somebody with higher priority always kept going into the queue and pushing him down and pushing him down. And he just kept waiting on his print job for years. I don't know if I believe that, but, you know, <laughs> hey, I've, I've, I'm, I'm willing to accept it. Because why would a professor lie to me, right? So Yeah, just talk to Alan. <laughs> yeah. But, well, you see, so but the funny the, thing about this movie is, and if I didn't say the movie we're talking about is Kong Skull Island, which by the time this airs should have already posted. But, uh... That is the kind of movie that had we recorded it close in time to when it came out, it would have bumped something else. But we didn't record it until it came out on home video, so it became less of a priority because of that. Yes, yeah. Well, what's funny is now it's like showing up on HBO, and I'm like, wow, okay, I guess it has been a little while since that movie came out. Which is funny, because it was only, only, um, well, as we're recording this, it was two years ago, but, you know, still, it, it only seems... It doesn't seem like it was that long ago. I, I remember it so distinctly, but hey, you know, that's uh, 
that that is that is, that is uh, you know the peak behind the fourth wall here at Two True Freaks that makes uh, you know uh, it's it, it's a it's an in depth process. <laughs> well, I mean, when, when you when you factor all of real life into things, if I didn't have a surplus of episodes when I had the chance to record them. I would never be able to keep a regular schedule on these things. Mm. And I'm yeah. pretty much, you know, not to pat myself on the back, but I'm pretty much like clockwork. I get a bins out every week. I get an is it yours out every two weeks and I get to listen to the profits out every two weeks. Mm. So, you know, that's four, four episodes every two weeks is a fairly heavy schedule if you ask me. And yeah. if I didn't get a surplus going on things, there, there would be a lot of weeks where I would not be able to keep up with the schedule. Oh yeah, I've, I've I mean, I only do, I only do work destruction directive, and um, you know, I've never, I don't think in the, this is going to be in, I think in uh, either, I think in April or May, right around there is going to be the seventh year that I've been doing that show, and I've never had a year where I put an episode out every month. I've never managed to pull it off. So I, I applaud you guys. And I always have all you guys that keep on that regular schedule and, and are on it every, you know, every period, whatever your period is, hit it, hit it, hit it. I, I applaud that so much because inevitably I'm like, you know, I, I get, I'm traveling or something comes up at work or whatever. And it's like the end of the month, I'm like, Oh crap, I am not prepared to do an episode in the next, you know, 18 hours. So I guess it's not going, that's going to happen this month. It's so. it's almost like the collector's mentality a little bit. You know how like when you when there's a series that you've bought every issue of and then it starts to suck, but mm-hmm. you keep buying it because you feel you have to. Right. It's, it, it's there's almost a little bit of that to it where, you know, I just you know, I've I've managed to hit the schedule for as long as I have and I just hate to end that streak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I, I don't know. I don't know it if it's. Impressive. I don't know. If, I don't know. I don't know if it's impressive or if it's pitiful, but it's there. Well, no, to me it's impressive because as I, you know, I always say this. Um, um, I, I, it, this is relatively fresh in my mind because I always say this uh, when I do the Christmas episode uh, right at the end of the year. That's always my last episode of any given year, and I always say that you know, podcasting is a labor of love, and us doing this. Yes, a show like this where you're recording it with with other other guys that you're you're friends with. Okay, yeah, you're palling around with your comic book nerd friends also. But the time taken doing the editing and the you know the behind the scenes stuff, that is time taken away from your job, from your family, from you know other things that need your attention. So there, are, it's a labor of love, and so to do it every week, regardless of what you as the content producer may think of the relative merits of any given episode. You know, obviously the listeners appreciate and enjoy it, and so it's a labor of love that you do because because you like and you enjoy putting that putting yourself out there and putting the show out there. You know, yeah. and there, there's there's a lot of power in that. There is there's definitely you know the labor of love aspect. I totally agree with you. Uh, as far as like you know the the audience and what they think, uh, you know, I mean, I get positive feedback from people, so I like that. Uh, how widespread it is, honestly, I have no real clue. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know how many people get to hear these shows. If it's just a really, really modest number, or if it's a number that would shock me, I I could not tell you. I've mm-hmm. looked at the numbers on the website because you know we have access to that, and I still don't understand them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can't make heads or tails out of it. So <laughs> I I have I have uh, I have two engineering degrees. Nothing, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but you know, I mean, the, the bottom line is this has been like a great source of making friends with people and, oh, and, yeah. and maintaining those friendships and just really enjoying myself. And I'll tell you, like when I'm getting stressed out, I, I hear, you know, do you, are you going on Skype tonight? Go on Skype. I want to hear you laugh. Yeah. You know, so there's definitely a, a healing aspect to it for me personally. Mm-hmm. So anyway, what's, what, what have you been doing uh, comic book wise for the last few months? Well, you know, um, I, about a few months back, you know, I, I have a, there's only really one major book that I collect that I'm, you know, really within spinning distance of, of finishing and it's Iron Man. Um, I have everything from, everything from uh, volume two, which was Heroes Reborn onward. I have all of that. And I, I started reading Iron Man right at the tail end of volume one. And it was right during the crossing. So mm-hmm. uh, 1995 or so. And yet you kept reading. And I kept reading. That tells you how much I loved Iron Man. Well, I got into Iron Man from the car, from the, the 90s cartoon, believe right, it or not. Okay. That, that's what drove me to Iron Man. So, so you're a Forceworks guy. Oh, yeah. I love Forceworks. I, I, I was at the used bookstore the other day. I saw a mint on card Toy Biz Iron Man Spider-Woman. I'm like, oh, for three bucks, I should buy this. And I'm like, no, don't buy that because <laughs> that's going to – I, ha- I have all the – I have almost all the Iron Mans. And I have all the war machines. There's only two war machines. And I have almost all the villains. I'm not I'm not sure if I'm missing any of the villains that actually got released at this point. But I don't have any of the Force Worksers. And it's like, if I buy Spider-Woman, I'm going to be hunting down Sentry and Hawkeye. And, you know, I don't know that I want to be doing that. But, but in any event, um, I'm now within, I'd say, probably about 20 issues or so of finishing up Volume 1 of Iron Man. So... That's about the main thing. Like I've been kind of hunting down here and there on on eBay or or every now and again. Like at when my we have two um, here in Greenville, South Carolina, we have two comic shops. They are a block away from each other, which is which is is funny. And and one of them, which is Borderlands, is is fantastic. And I I've been going there for years. When I wasn't getting my comics mail order, that's who I would get them from every week. The other place whose whose name I won't name drop, but um, because I, I don't particularly like them. I don't really like the guy who runs them. I, they don't have good prices, but I'll occasionally pop in like on free comic book day. They'll have a sale and I'll go pop in there. So I picked up a few. I've, I've been, what I find myself doing is I'll, I'll end a quarter and I'll have, you know, $5 in eBay bucks. I'm like, okay, well I can go pick up a single issue for five bucks shipped, you know, mm-hmm. something at a, something usually for what I'm looking for, usually something in the fifties or, or sixties. Uh, in in volume one, and so that, that's what I'm trying to finish up. The problem's going to be that uh, they're going to. I mean, some of these books you can fill in. There's not a whole lot of particularly valuable Bronze Age Iron Man books, um, with the exception of the first appearance of Thanos, which it's like, yeah, okay, that's going to be out of my range for quite a while. Unless um, you get lucky on it. Yeah, you find it in a lot or something. But now, it's with all, all the attention paid to Thanos as a character, you know. He might be appearing in a movie or something. I haven't really heard much about <laughs> No, you'd, you'd have to find it like at a garage sale or something where somebody just doesn't even know yeah. that, that it's a significant issue. The the <laughs> other one that, that's really hard to find is, I think it's uh, three, uh, 305, which is the first Hulkbuster, which is also very, for a 90s book especially, is extremely hard to find at a reasonable price. Which to me is is always odd because I started reading comics in the '90s, so to me '90s books are never worth anything, like like in my mind. Like I I was um, I, th- I think I think Scott was talking about like Amazing Spider-Man 300, which is the first appearance of Venom, and I don't have that. 
Mm-hmm. And but he he was talking about that. He's like, oh, and, and he's like in ASM. Um, I think it's 362 or 361, which is the first appearance of Carnage, is also worth a pretty penny. I'm like, really? I is bought it? that I off the rack. One, yeah, I didn't think that one. It's not, it's, it's not, yeah, I mean, it's not to like, it's not to like any of the, you know, like, like the Deadpool or Cable or Venom or those, you know, those characters, but apparently that one sells at a decent clip. And it's like, I didn't, I never realized that book was worth more than cover price, you know, because yeah. that to me is a common book. I bought it for a dollar fifty or whatever, whatever the cover oh. price was at that point for Spider-Man because like, Ooh, a new Venom story. I'll buy that, you know, and that was it. So yeah, <laughs> it's same, same a here. little odd to me. <laughs> Same here. In fact, I, and I thought as a character that he was, you know, nothing special. To be honest with you, I thought he was, uh, you know, kind of, kind of one of those uh, we go to the well once too often characters. Yeah. Well, I'm a big, I'm a huge Venom fanboy. Venom was the first when I when I got for real air quotes up to the microphone into collecting. Venom was the character that I first was obsessed with. And so what I liked about Carnage was that it allowed it pushed Venom more towards the anti-hero role. And because of Carnage, we were able to get, um, you know, we were able to get the story of that was in Amazing Spider-Man 375, which begat the Venom miniseries, which was Lethal Protector and pushed Venom kind of into his own little sphere where he was still a Spider-Man character. But he was on the West Coast. He was doing his own thing, and then he had his ongoing series of miniseries for many years after that. Yeah. So and, as, and a, I th- as a, I, I thought it was like a kind of on a downward spiral at that point. Yeah. And, and and I, you know, I, each yeah. new miniseries seemed like they were really stretching to try and keep going. Yeah, they, they they were they got a little dog a little doggy in there for a bit, but there there was, and it was everyone had a guest star. Every one of them had a guest star. Like the fir- after Lethal Protector came Funeral Pyre, which guest starred the Punisher, and then it was the Madness, which guest starred the Juggernaut, and then they had uh, Knights of Vengeance, which teamed him up with Vengeance. Vengeance was already like the Venom version of Ghost Rider, and, <laughs> <laughs> and they teamed them together. And you know, and, and every, I mean, right through the end, I think all of them had a guest star for for every single one of them. And uh, you know, but uh, hey, that I, I mean, I was you know, I was in, I was in, I wasn't even in high school. I was in middle school. I was in uh, like sixth, seventh grade, in that. And so I, you know, I just ate that stuff up with a spoon. But, but yeah, but you know, so that's mainly it's just been, uh, like I said, just my normal stuff in Iron Man. I, I mean, the thing now is, I read so. I'm at this at this point. I read less Marvel and DC now than I think any other time that I've actually been reading comics seriously. Um, you know, one of, one of the books that I've really enjoyed from Marvel was Luke Cage, which just got canceled. Um, you know, Iron Man has been kind of really, you know, rough going with the uh, Brian Michael Bendis. Um, uh, he, he's been writing the book for a couple of years now, and it's been it's been typical Bendis, which means it's up and down. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes it's like, OK, this is a really good idea. And then sometimes it's like, really, you're spending a whole issue on that. So it's, <laughs> and, and 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 before before, you know, um please don't misunderstand like Riri Williams Ironheart I really like Ironheart but I'd rather I'd rather her have her own book and I could still read about Tony Stark but <laughs> you know that that wasn't in Marvel's uh marketing scheme for the last couple of years so yeah well you know I mean I've long said that the new books don't nearly have the uh the draw for me that the old ones do anyway so right I'd, I'd rather pick a run from 25 35 years ago and and sit and read through that then pick up new stuff that's coming out and then yeah. it's funny because when i go to the store and try to pick up some old books 
I'm not quite at the Professor Allen level of things needing to be a quarter each, but I do find myself, like, if a book is more than one or two dollars, I look at it carefully before I'm willing to buy it. Meanwhile, new books that come out are, you know, four and five dollars. Right, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> And and I uh, I get I get my new comics through DCBS, so I look at I go through previews every month, their 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 Excel format of previews, and you know really look at them and say do I want to spend this much money after discount on this book, you mm-hmm. know, and um, again I'm I'm you know for I mean I, I'll, I'll you know in DC I think oh I'm only getting like Flash I think now I don't because there's no Hawkman book right now and you know I'm not really interested in any of the you know, 13 Batman books or whatever that, Although that they I hear put the, out. The prime Batman book I hear is very, very good. I haven't read it yet. Yeah. But but I, I think that's one I may try and see if I can get at a decent price down the line and, and read them all because I'm hearing that it's been consistently good for some time now. Well, let me let me make I, – I've got a, something that may help you out with that. Um, there is an app, a free app. I, I'm assuming it's on uh, the on Apple. I have it on my Android. I have an Android tablet and an Android phone. It's called Hoopla, uh, H-O-O-P-L-A. And mm-hmm. Hoopla is an app that works with your local library. Now they have now here. At, let's say the Greenville County Library System is attached to it. Uh, you'd have to go and look and see if your uh, local library was in it. But basically, you log into it using your uh, your library card. Right. So a library card number is your login. And then you can rent uh, items that they have in digital format or check out, I should say, items that you have in digital format. And you get it for a certain period, just like a regular library. Well, they've got hundreds and hundreds of trade paperbacks on there. And it's mostly modern stuff. So like I was I, I, I signed up for this. I had to go and get my uh, I had to, uh, update my account. So I went to the library the other day and I went and I logged into this app. And I'm just scrolling through after page after page, all DC Rebirth stuff, you know, all modern Marvel stuff. There's tons and tons of it because it's all the trade paperbacks. And usually I think you can check the comics out for either usually two weeks or three weeks at a clip. So more than enough time to read a modern trade. And you're limited, I think, either six or seven items a month. But so, you know, it's like if, if you want like the, the, the current Batman, I'm sure most like I know my library has tons of New 52 and Rebirth Batman stuff on their shelves just because that's that's what they you know, that that's the kind of stuff that stocks in modern libraries when they stock comics. So it's it's an option to go out there and at least try and find some of this stuff and then you can read it and uh, not pay for it. But you're not stealing it because you are using it through a, a legal library source. Yeah, that's that sounds great, and uh, I'm gonna have to check that out. Uh, you know, like you know, for me in, in Nassau County, uh, you know, you can go to any Nassau County library and take things out. Yes, and my library has some, you know, it has a, has a halfway decent uh, trade paperback graphic novel section, but they, I know the one, the library in Bethpage, which is about 15 minutes from here has an excellent graphic novel trade paperback section. So every mm-hmm. once in a while I'll stop there and take a few things out. Especially, yeah. I, I found it's especially good like if I'm going on vacation. Yes. Take out, take out about four four trades, bring them with me on, on vacation. You know, because I, I have this tendency to wake up at 6 a.m. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when, when when I'm awake and everybody else is sleeping, it's, it's not a bad way to spend my morning. 
Oh yeah, I do that too. I do that too. Just get get the put the coffee on and you know grab a grab a stack of uh, whatever whatever you know. For me, it's usually Valiant trades because I Valiant is my favorite modern publisher. So to me, when I like I said, when I'm looking through DCBS, looking through previews, when I get down to the bottom of, of the comic section, that's where Valiant is, obviously, because all the uh, the third party publishers are in alphabetical order. So Valiant's right there at the end. And uh, inevitably, it's like, yep, that's worth it. That's worth it. That's every month because they're, you know, they're they're my they're my favorite publisher right now and have been pretty much since they relaunched. So, uh, uh, so I, I, you know, that's that's what I'm saying. I'm I'm still reading probably the same amount of comics. It's just majority of them come are either, you know, IDW, which means Uncle Scrooge and GI Joe, because you know this is serious business. These comic books, right? And <laughs> or it's all valiant stuff where it's like me and a, you know the the circle of guys that um and girls I should say there's one gal that I put on to uh, valiant that also loves it uh, that talking valiant stuff and it's like nobody else really kind of knows what we're talking about but but that's okay you know if, I've if, actually uh, heard since valiant <laughs> relaunched I've heard consistently good things about what what they've come out with oh yeah and uh, yeah. but I, I have while I've meant to read some of it so far I still have not. The the one I'll I'll give you the just my elevator pitch on one of the reasons why I really like Valiant. Um, I'll, I'll give you a, a for instance. Last year, the uh, there are last year or two years ago. I'm trying to remember. Whatever one of their their big events, their event books, air quotes up to the mic, event books mm-hmm. are have all of them. Every one they've done since they've relaunched have been a four issue miniseries, and that's it. So all their big their their big events are not we're going to take over every book in the line for six months or seven months, or whatever it is. It's a four issue mini, and then they'll have either usually they have like a couple of one shots, or if one of the books like if like if it's say um, uh, like when they did the uh, story four thousand A.D., which specifically dealt with the character Rye, Rye's book for those four months told stories related to 4000 AD but you didn't need to read Rye you could just get the four issues of 4000 AD and that was it you got the whole story so I found in the Marvel and DC major crossovers which is very very different from what you've just described oh, yeah. uh, but I found for the most part you can get away with just reading the prime crossover series mm-hmm. you know let's use uh, Siege for, for example if you just read the, whatever that was, I think four or five issue series of The Siege, you got the story and you were good. Right. The problem with it is they take over all these other books with these inane crossovers right? Uh, that really don't have any real you know, uh, interaction with the story that you need to have read, but mm-hmm. it's interrupting 12 different series to do it. Yes. That's the problem. It's it's not that you can't just read the main series because you can. In most of the, most cases, uh, you know, I've done that and I've been fine. And when I do end up going into the uh, the crossover in the individual series, that's where I start, you know, kicking and saying this is a waste of my time. Right. Yeah. the The one that was kind of the kicker for me was um, secret the new Secret War uh, mm-hmm. because that that never wanted to end. It, it just kept going and going and going. And it's like, I, I, I got it because I had pre-ordered it. And, uh, you know, I was like, well, I'm, I'm kind of stuck with it. I'll, I'll sell it off when it's done. But, it, but in the, in the span of time, but like somewhere in the middle of secret war, Valiant had a whole event 
beginning, middle, and end. <laughs> and Secret War was still going on, and it yeah. still didn't make a whole lot of sense. It's like, you know what? Wait a minute here. But you know, again, that's uh, I'm 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 a true believer. So I'm you know my my uh, uh, take take whatever I say with with the grain of salt until you, you check them out for yourself. But um, uh, but the the thing that I always love about Back to the Bins is because we're not looking forward we're always looking backwards at back to the bins to the mm-hmm. hallowed days of antiquity you know <laughs> and what's funny is that both of our books are from right around the same time yes which is which is really amusing and uh and and if you've looked at the art for this episode i know what you're thinking oh it's a bronze age marvel book and then something with godzilla so luke must have bought the godzilla book and paul must have brought the bronze age marvel book and no. you'd be wrong. You'd be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just, yeah, just by chance that we picked what we did. And uh, I think that's the perfect segue into the books. Mm-hmm. You are nothing if so, not a, uh, uh, a master of segue. Yes. Well, you know, I, I, I went to that segue school that came highly recommended by uh, <laughs> Andrew Leyland and Stephen Lacey from the Fantastic Cast. It's worth every penny, let me tell you. Um, but, uh, yes. Yeah, so, uh, so our first book that I'm, uh, the first book that we've got tonight is from Marvel and it is the champions number four. And, uh, this was uh, cover dated of March, 1976. It came out, uh, the week of Christmas, 1975. This, I would have been, let's see, negative five and a half years old when this came out. And I would uh, have been two years old. <laughs> well, it's, a, uh, it, it's funny because, you know, uh, it, I, I, I don't think of myself that way, but I am one of the younger guys on the network, and especially with a lot of the folks that I record with. So I, I get like, and but I, my interests run to a lot of things from before I was born. So they're like, wow, really? You're, you're not that, you're that young? I'm like, oh, yeah, you know. Yeah, I, 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 also I, feel I have like, had that experience with you in the past where sometimes yeah. I talk to you and, and I forget how, how much younger than me you are. And then you go on Jay's show and my dad's on it. And then it's, you know, then everything gets put in perspective. But, uh, the, uh, but, but anyway, that, that's, that's a, that's a philosophical debate for, uh, for another time. But, uh, our, our cover for the champions depicts all the champions fighting each other. We've got, uh, Hercules throw, picking up a brick wall that he is going to hurl at Iceman as Johnny blaze seems to jump into both of them. While above them, the angel and the black widow are tussling with, uh, uh, Black Widow firing her widow's bite right at Angel's chest. And our cover copy says, It's champion versus champion in a battle to the death. The slugfest you dare not miss. Murder at Malibu. And I think it's funny. We're only four issues in and we've already revert, re- resorted. Everybody has to. Everybody in the team fights each other trope. That's how prevalent that is, I guess, in, in the Bronze Age. But yes, uh, it was, it was, If you didn't see that at some point, something was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so our 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 uh, our story is entitled Murder at Malibu. Uh our credits this one now Chris Claremont is guest writer because this is only I said the fourth issue and uh and of course it was Tony Isabella who was the cre- one of the creators and the writer on the Champions. Our artist is uh, your favorite Paul George Tusca. Uh our inker is everybody's favorite Vince Coletta. Uh, the uh, colorist is Irving Watanabe, or excuse me, the letterer is Irving Watanabe, my mistake. Uh, the uh, Phil Ray- Rachelson is the colorist, and the editor is Marv Wolfman. And our story goes a little something like this. 
Black Widow and Hercules enjoy a long walk on the beach, where Herc broods over the mission which brought the champions together very recently. Suddenly, the pair is ambushed by a mysterious, raving man named Billy. The attack is his own, but Billy is eventually put down and revealed to be an old man. Further investigation has to wait, however, as a group of armed gunmen arrive to take Billy away. The gunmen use their weapons to subdue the widow and Herc. The pair are taken to San Marino State Hospital, and they meet one Dr. Edward Lansing. Lansing had been a professor at a major university, but his experiments were deemed too controversial, and he ended up at the 10th-rate nervous hospital San Marino. Now he uses the patients as guinea pigs to recreate the super soldier serum, and he has seemingly succeeded with Billy as the prototype. On the downside, the process turns the recipients into a raving childlike beast monsters. Hercules tries to fight out of his bonds, but Lansing has a shock collar on the widow, and which stays the Olympian's hand. Lansing has other plans for the two heroes. We cut to Champions HQ, which is also known as Warren Worthington III's Beach House, as Hercules, Black Widow, and other San Marino inmates bust in, clearly under the mental control of some outside influence. They find Warren Worthington, Bobby Drake, and Johnny Blaze, and uh, Black Widow's uh, friend Ivan, uh, there, in, sort of in their civilian garb, except for the Angel, who's wearing his costume for some reason. And they are outmuscled by this group. So Angel, Iceman, and Ghost Rider all change and attempt to stop Hercules, but they are way out of his weight class, and they can't do much against him. Ivan goes after uh, Lansing, but Ivan is then immediately attacked by the Black Widow. Now, Natasha wails on her friend, but eventually she recognizes him, and it snaps her free of Lansing's mind control. So Widow then goes after Lansing, and she takes him down with some fancy uh, martial arts move and control unit. Lansing panics, knowing that without the mental control unit, the inmates are going to turn on him, so fleeing retribution, he, takes, he gets out of dodge. The inmates are taken away by the authorities, and, uh, you know, Warren says that they'll be looked after, and Hercules is in a funk. He's all angry because they, they, all these horrible things happen to these innocent people, but Angel reminds him that, uh, you know, we, we, all we can do is go forward because the world still needs champions. So uh, where, did you read Champions when it was first coming out, Paul? I did, and I was enthralled by this series. Mm. I just thought it was such a cool combination of characters who really, you know, it, it was almost from the Defenders mold, you know, the non-team thing, even though they were clearly a team, but almost like characters that didn't belong together. Hercules, right. you know, and, and Ghost Rider in particular. You know, I, I think, you, you know, you can get away with Angel Iceman and, and Black Widow. But Hercules right. and, and Ghost Rider being, you know, in a, in a team book like this just really caught my eye at the time and just made it seem like, you know, it was just a cool pairing. And I, I, I picked it up from issue one and I have every issue and I was mm-hmm. going along with it, you know, every step of the way. And I'm going to surprise you by saying, you know, George Tusca and Vince Coletta. And yet I like the art in this book. Yeah, it, 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 it is. It is a little it's a little atypical. Okay. For whatever reason, for this particular story, they come together. I think it's it plays to their strengths in a ways. See that I was I, I first remember hearing about the champions probably in Wizard magazine. I'm really dating myself now, where they were making fun of them as Wizard did for anything from the Bronze Age. You know, if it, if it wasn't um, you know 
No, if it wasn't one of the things that was deemed cool, it automatically sucked. And Champions was one of those. And um, I, I didn't, and I didn't really get into or have much knowledge of, frankly, Marvel Bronze Age until I was in college and I started uh, and I got on the internet. That was the main thing that started opening my eyes to a lot of this stuff. And I, I, I kind of had the same reaction you did. This is an odd pairing of characters, and so I'm interested because it's such an unusual grouping. And uh, and I don't I don't know if this if this is true, but the story that I read was that uh, this book started out with uh, as as a Angel and Iceman team up book because this was after Giant Size X Men, Angel and Iceman were no longer in X Men and they were kind of characters without a home. So Tony Isabella wanted to put them out in the West Coast and and tell stories with the two of them. And supposedly the editorial board came back to him and said, well, if you're going to do this book, you need to have, you need to have a, uh, a girl in the book. And he said, okay, I'll add the black widow. And he said, okay, well, you also need a character who was an Avenger. And it's like, okay, well, I guess I can put Hercules in the book. And he said, and you also need a character who has his own title. It's like, none of them has, it's like, well, I guess the ghost rider has a title. He's on the West coast. Right. So, so that's apparently how it, it came out. I, I don't know if that's accurate or apocryphal, but to me, this always looked like a, a, a team that you would make, like if you were playing a role-playing game and it's yeah, like, it, you know, it seemed like fan fiction. Yeah. Everybody just kind of like, well, I want to, I want to play Hercules. Like shit, he's playing Hercules. I'm playing ghost rider. You know? Well, you know, <laughs> each, meanwhile, each the two guys book. who just wanted to be the X-Men are like, guys, guys, <laughs> each, each team book always had like the, the muscle, you know, the, the muscle on the team. And usually right. that would be the guy, especially on the covers, that they would focus on. And just mm-hmm. look at the cover of Champions Number One just to to see an example of that. Yes, um, absolutely. <laughs> so, so you know, Hercules seemed like a natural fit as far as that formula goes. Now, I, I don't know about you know the story that you just told. Uh, that could very well be accurate. I, I just no, don't know. Um, but I do I do know in I do remember hearing in particular that uh, that they were looking to use Angel and Iceman. And I, for some reason, thought that they were looking to do almost the, you know, the old X-Men, like they might have wanted to try and get Beast in there. Uh, but, you know, whatever the case may be, I just, like I said, I just thought this was cool. One, one thing I'm going to go off of the cool right off the bat is I just think the unif- the costume that gave the Angel was awful. That is that is one of the worst costumes he ever had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For a guy that's had a bunch of costumes, you don't you don't think about it. But even even disregarding the Archangel costumes, the Angel has had a bunch of costumes, and this is not one. You know, I I always like just the real simple, either red and white or blue and white with the halo. Mm-hmm. I yeah, always like that favorite. one. And uh, this 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 just looks so overwrought. And and to me, it's a shame because the other the other four members of the champions have such great looks. I mean, when I was looking at my favorite shows was Spider-Man, his amazing friend. So I always have loved Iceman's iced up look. It's just so classic. You know, it's 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 one of the ways you can do a monochromatic look and have it look right because he's iced. Right. Yeah. And, and I always like, you know, Hercules is always. Him. Yeah. I, I never liked when they tried to make him, right. you know, look snowman like or, or like Jack Frost with, you know, like icicles hanging off of him. I never liked those looks. I just like the crystalline look. Yeah, that, that's the very classic Iceman look. And, you know, what, I mean, Ghost Rider, Black Widow, and Hercules are just, I mean, those are great, great Marvel costumes, you know? The, 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 the prototypical femme fatale, 
you know, Ghost Rider was created to look cool, and then everybody loves Hercules, you know. It's, uh, if you have any, any appreciation for, uh, you know, uh, Hercules and Hercules Unchained, you know, <laughs> then you mm-hmm. love the, uh, the, uh, the, the Steve Reeves-style Hercules that we got in Marvel Comics. But, um, and, and, you know, that, that, that's, it, the cover is good because it does showcase everybody like that. What I, what I, you know, the thing that's interesting, not interesting, but I never noticed about the cover until I was doing this, is that it's got one of the cardinal, cardinal sins of the Marvel Bronze Age comic. Are you, do you know what I'm talking about? I'm, I'm not sure. Too many words. Uh, the blank background. Oh. It's, it's, got, it's, the plain, well, it's got the building in the background. So yeah, but then I'm it just goes to okay. white behind it. It's like zero hours happening behind them here. <laughs> I'm just thinking but it's it, a cloud, it, cloudy sky. Yeah. There's never clouds in L.A., man. It's sunny 365 days out of the year in Malibu. That's I'm, I'm the, way they have, the way they have this drawn, you'd think it was a Midwest shack, though. You wouldn't even think it was Malibu. Yeah. Right, yeah. But, and then uh, on the know, cover, now that, now my that first see, uh, thing that I was, when I started looking at it more closely is, what's the Iceman doing with his left hand? He's yeah, just sh- he, shooting ice to... For, to, for no reason. Right, well, it's almost, it, it's, is he making a ramp for Ghost Rider? Or is he trying to hit the Widow? Or is he trying to hit Hercules? It, you're right. It's not. It's not real clear here. He also looks like, uh, um, like uh, Pat Lee from the old Dreamwave Transformers comics room because he's got like cracks all over him. Mm. Yeah. I guess now that you say it, I guess he is making a ramp for uh, for the Ghost Rider because first of all, how is Ghost Rider in the middle of the air like that if he's not? Second of all, behind him you could see there's an ice ramp running yeah. back. So I guess yeah, he's 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 creating a ramp at the same time as he's fighting Hercules, and Hercules is about to brain him with uh, I don't know, probably about twelve hundred pounds of, of bricks right there. Yeah, little masonry never hurt anyone except when you got hit with it. But uh, the the uh, and and you know Ghost Rider jumping first thing in my mind is hey, you ever take this thing off any sweet jumps? You know, but that's, I always think that with the Ghost Rider, so that, that's probably just me. Um, I do like that Angel is completely getting owned by the Widow, because he has thrown a punch that she has grabbed his wrist, and she's also shooting him with her Widow's Bite. Which should, you know, he's and, got, he doesn't have superhuman strength. That should take him out. Yeah, he'll be down with that. And, and that's kind of funny if you've read, and I, and I mean you, like the Royal you because I, I know you've read it but they were all they, those two were always a, a little bit at odds with each other in this book because widow was ostensibly the leader but like angel was like the public face of the champions and so every and like he named the group and like apologized to widow for naming the group in, in instead of her doing it so the two of them tussle they don't actually tussle in the book but that would make make sense that you know eventually there might be some some pent-up hostilities but uh I, it's, like I said, if I, 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 when I was reading through this series, I saw this cover and said, yeah, this, this looks pretty good. Then I saw that it was Chris, uh, Chris Claremont writing it. And it's like, wow, I, I never realized Claremont wrote any of it. I didn't realize anybody other than Tony Isabella wrote the champions in this era. Um, so that, that was one of the reasons that I, that I, I was drawn to this one when I was doing my read through. But, uh, but you, you had mentioned, uh, that despite it being, you know, two guys that you're not necessarily fans of in George Tusca and Vinnie Coletta, that the art looks nice. And I have to agree. I mean, just, uh, the, I'm not, like I said, he doesn't have, there's some odd faces in here. There's some obviously, uh, you know, Tusca faces like on some of the crazy, some of the crazy guys, and you know, Lan- some of the, the inmates. Tusca face. 
Oh yeah, Lansing as well. The, like on, on page ten when we first see him and he's got that big like mouth yeah. on the bottom there when he's <laughs> shocking the, the the widow. But but he, it, I'm like I said, I'm I'm not sure if it was what it is, but it's it's not as kind of over um, over stylized like some of Tuska's uh, stuff is. See, I've always liked Tuska's action work and all that, and he gets a lot of action to do here because we got a lot of fights. Um, and, and I, and I, and benefit, I've always liked his women. So him doing the black widow is always welcome to me. Right. If you look at page 14, uh, mm-hmm. at the top left panel, the first panel, I kind of like the way he drew Lansing there. I wish he had kind of been consistent with that through the whole book. Cause I think that, yeah. that looks, he looks a little different than he does in the rest of the book there. But I think that that particular character model is the way I would want to go with him. And and I just, I get a big kick out of the bottom right panel in this one because it looks like he's breaking into song and doing jazz hands. Yeah. <laughs> ha! Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he doesn't, he doesn't look quite, uh, he looks more human in that first panel and not like a, you know, some kind of rat creature like he does for, a lot of the rest of it. The other thing I, that, that I don't particularly care for, and I don't want to focus too much on what I don't care for because I did like the artwork in this, I don't really care for the minion uniform uh, design that he came yeah. up with. But that's that's nitpicky. Because other, otherwise I'm pretty happy with the artwork throughout this book. Yeah, I, I, yeah the minions, they, they, don't, they look a little strange. The other one that... Uh, kind of struck me as odd is you go back to page 11 when we're getting the flashback and um yeah and he's talking about how he was you know doing his, these experiments and has finally succeeded billy looks so jacked he looks like mm-hmm. mr hyde in yeah. that. and he doesn't look like that jacked anywhere else in the book because he's obviously a lot smaller than herc you know when they're fighting but they're like oh he's such a small he, you know they're they're saying he's just a normal older guy and he's got the strength of you know, to fight with Hercules, but here it's like you said, he looks like he could go uh, go fight the Avengers here. So, and he's got the uh, again, it goes to the same tailor as Luke Cage because that's you know, look, you make that shirt yellow, you tell me that's not like Luke Cage's shirt that he's wearing there, <laughs> yeah, with the big yeah, collar on it. It definitely has the same look, but then you know, we're talking George Tuska, so yeah, there you go, right up the alley. But but uh, but no, I, I really enjoyed the art in this too. Like the, um, I thought the splash with just the two of them having their long walk on the beach, um, I, I thought was for for a splash that has absolutely no action. I I just liked kind of the layout of it, and I, I think it's great that both Herc and the Widow are wearing their costumes. I, I don't know why that that now in retrospect always amuses me that in downtime we're still going to wear the costume. Now Hercules, okay, I can buy that. But it's like, the, you, I mean, I don't know. Maybe the widow's always ready for action, I guess. She just expects things to go wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of get a kick out of that also. And, and I've seen that in some books, especially like in Avengers, you know, Silver yes. Age Avengers. With, you know, they're just sitting around the mansion with their uniforms on, including the masks. Right. It's just, you know, like, the, the, like, the way they always, yeah. I'd say the way you hand wave it on the Avengers was they didn't know each other's identities. Well, yeah, but then, you know, like somebody like Captain America, you know, would walk around yeah, without his mask sometimes. And same thing yeah. even with, with Hawkeye. But then they'd show them just sitting around the mansion in the, with their masks on. It's like, is right. that uncomfortable? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the one, the bit I always remember, it was, 
was I, I'm trying to remember if Roy Thomas was writing at this point or who was writing. I forget who was writing for the Avengers, but Hercules was a regular. This was during like his first run as a regular on Avengers. So it's around Thor, issue 38 or so. Yeah, it's it's in it's in either I want to say it's at this moment happens either in the second or third volume of the Essential. So right around there in the in the late 30s, mid 40s, where. Um, and Thor was off doing Asgardian stuff, and so Herc was the big, he was the muscle of the team. And there's this whole, whole thing where he's, he's you know, because he, he's been exiled from Olympus, and he's all, you know, it's a, one big Greek tragedy with this guy, right? So so he, he decides that he's going to go, and if he's stuck on Earth, he's going to go and be like an Earthling. So he goes upstairs, and he shaves, and he puts on, a, he gets a new suit, and he comes downstairs to go out, and all the ladies are like swooning over Hercules. That I don't. That always stuck with me. It's like that. That is like the most perfect Hercules character moment. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> that these Avengers ladies who are you know essentially goddesses walking on the earth. They see you know Hercules with a shave and a new suit, and they turn into putty. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, ladies and gentlemen, the Marvel Silver Age. There you go. <laughs> but uh, yeah. but the sequence at the beginning when they get they get ambushed is a lot of fun just because. Um, they're they're kind of fighting in a weird environment. They even make a point of saying that that you know they're they're, they're on the beach, so there's a lot of sand. They're right in the surf. Um, you know, uh, on on page three, Widow kicks the guy so hard his face explodes. Yeah, crash. <laughs> yeah. You know, the one uh, thing about that sequence that just didn't feel right is that he was able to take Hercules out basically with one. I don't know if you want to say a punch or an impact, but he, he takes yeah. Hercules out long enough for him to have this whole battle with Widow. And and when Hercules kind of sees what's going on, he's too far away to actually reach him. Yeah. And then he pulls a Hulk move and punches, punches the sand so hard it makes him drop her. <laughs> How hard do you have to punch sand to do that? Yeah, it's all it's all glass around him now, basically, so hardy. He hit him. <laughs> well, what's interesting about that, not only this sequence, but also some of the later stuff with the widow is that I mentioned them earlier in the, in the episode and uh, had tip again to uh, the fantastic cast, but not too long ago in the fantastic cast, uh, uh, Andy and Steven covered an issue of Marvel two in one, which coast, which guest starred the black widow with the thing. And it was also written by Chris, by Chris Claremont. <laughs> and, so this was in the period that that happened. That issue came out right before a couple of months before this, because that came that was the Black Widow's first appearance after leaving Daredevil. Then she was in that two in one, and then she then the champions. So Claremont once again writing her and writing her as this you know super competent badass, which you know when if, if you think about Chris Claremont the way that he writes women that that's on point that makes sense i just thought it was interesting on the timing that claremont was handling stuff on the widow in like a, a onesie twosie sense and really putting her over as this this operator because right. again th- this guy is strong enough to apparently fight uh hercules and widow is hanging with it the only reason why she gets beat is because she gets hit by a wave you know and we've all been there right you know <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she gets thrown off balance, and that's why yeah. he's able to get her, get it, get her into a bad position. Mm. The, I, you know, I, I was this is you know around the era when I first was really, really actively reading comics, and 
this is when I, I was introduced to the widow. So when I first got to know her, she was always hanging out with Ivan, mm-hmm. who was in, you know, featured in this book and in the series. And they always presented it as a surrogate father-daughter relationship. And I wasn't reading it when they changed that, but I have a real problem that they did, that he had romantic feelings mm-hmm. for her and she wasn't reciprocating them. And it's like, oh, please. Yeah. And again, I didn't read those, those books, so I don't know if they were well done, but the, the whole concept I find just slightly offensive. Yeah, sometimes it's better just to leave well enough alone. You know, adding adding that in, it's you have to, you know, as, as a reader, I ask, does that really add value? And if it and, and if it adds value, say, like, okay, well, does it devalue other stories to do that? You know, does it does it does making that change? Yeah, okay, maybe it serves your story you're telling now, but what about how many decades of Black Widow stories now are weird? Or whatever, because you can't read them that way with knowing that, you know, mm-hmm. or they don't work knowing that, um, you know, that and, and then and this, this one, he doesn't really have much. But in the earlier issues of this, you know, Ivan's right there with her at the beginning of, you know, because basically she's trying to get set up as like a professor at uh, what are they at? What are they at? Berkeley? Yeah, I think so. And and so he's so he's telling you know saying hey you know helping her talking her through transitioning out of superhero life to civilian life and you know all this so he's he's obviously looking out for her, you know if you if you know you know again if you know something that happens later it's like well why is he you know maybe he's trying to have some ulterior motive here but uh, yeah, and it, lo- it's almost it's it's almost as distasteful in its own way as you know the. Uh, Gwen Stacy sleeping with Norman Osborn story. Yeah. And, and I, I know it doesn't work with continuity at all, but in my mind, that's Gwen Stacy's clone that did that. In my mind, that story was fan fiction <laughs> and, and it just never happened. Cause that's just oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, it's, does it, does it even matter anymore? Can, do we know what's in continuity or not at Marvel? I mean, if it wasn't written in the last five years, uh, does it even count? I don't even know anymore. You know, it used yeah. to be that I was always always a joke about DC, but now Marvel's just as bad about it. Yeah, at least DC will give you a new. We'll, we'll tell you we're rebooting the universe. <laughs> you may not like it, but they'll tell you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and clearly, that's not the end all and be all answer of all problems. Right. Yeah. They're, you know, they're, even the Ultimate Universe that was Marvel's attempt to do it without doing it. Yeah. And you know, eventually it crumbled in on itself anyway. Yeah. Uh, I, I, one of the, one of the, uh, I remember when you guys did the ultimates number one, many, many moons ago. Mm-hmm. And I remember listening to it and thinking, man, I wish I could have been on for that episode. Cause I would love to give a book an F because <laughs> to me that the ultimates number one is one of the absolute worst comics ever published. But, but again, that's, that, that's not the champions. This, this is not one of the worst books ever published. I don't remember what I gave that book. I really don't. <laughs> I probably I think I was more generous than an F. Uh, I, I if if my memory serves me, and I couldn't tell you what I rated it, but if my memory serves me, I thought that that series, like many of the Ultimate ones, started off interesting, and you know maybe wasn't great art by any stretch, but I thought it was interesting and compelling to some extent, and then eventually just kind of petered out and became, you know. Uh, you know, shocking for the sake of shocking or boring. Right. One, one or the other. Mm-hmm. So, 
you know, I don't, I don't know. And in the long run, I think it was a failed experiment with the, you know, with, with a couple of minor exceptions. Yeah. But, uh, but in any but, event. But back to this book, as yes. you said. It's um, a segue. Page 15, when we meet the, when the other champions are introduced to the story, how awesome is Hercules punching through the wall? He, he looks like... He, he, he opened up a huge hole there. He, he should have killed the other three guys just with the shrapnel alone. Yeah. Well, it, clearly, the, um, uh, Tusca does not subscribe to the George Perez rule of rubble, where you draw twice as much rubble as would actually exist if you did it. He draws because about it's not, maybe one-eighth of the rubble. Yeah, there's not nearly enough rubble here. But, uh, you know, there's a this copy is, of the X-Men falling to the yes. ground. Is that I guess uh, that's uh, and that's Iceman who's reading it. I think it's either that's weird yes. because here, well, we've got up top, we've got the angel chilling out in his costume, you know, looking very nonchalant. We, we've got we've got Ivan, and then we've got it, it's it's Iceman. But if you if you look through it in the story, Johnny Blaze is uh, is oh no he's not okay. There's there's a coloring error here where somebody else is also wearing an orange shirt. Or that, or or that, or oh no, Iceman's talking to himself. Oh, that's what it is. Okay, that makes more sense now. Now that I look at it, look at it again. But yeah, he's reading X Men, so he's probably like, oh, some stupid Storm, Nightcrawler. I go to next. Actually, what, what's kind of funny, speaking of of Iceman, is that um, the current Iceman series, which as of this recording has just been announced, is is being shockingly canceled. As Marvel, you know, uh, it's a book that doesn't star, uh, you know, somebody that has a movie or something. So it's probably going to get canceled anyway. But they just did a story in um, the Iceman book because in, I guess it's in Civil War II or uh, Siege or whatever. what Whatever sto- big storyline it was, the Black Widow is currently dead in the Marvel Universe. And so they had a Champions reunion in Los Angeles where they, you know, just met and, you know, swapped Black Widow stories. And so the surviving champions, including Darkstar, all just, you know, just met and they were talking champion stories and all that. And so, and, and there's also a current book called The Champions, which mm-hmm. is a lot of the younger uh, uh, heroes like Ms. Marvel and Ironheart and the Amadeus Cho Hulk. And I think the new Nova is in there. So, and apparently there was a story in there. Um, uh, Jason Trenner was actually telling me this uh, a couple of weeks ago that apparently there was a story in that where they met up with the original champions and the, the original champions okayed them using the name. So they're getting the champions are getting a little bit of love here, kind of you know, kind of on the you know, sideways sort of way. But at least they're getting they're getting put over and not being used as a butt of a joke, like in uh, the first arc of New Avengers, where. Um, uh, Captain America makes reference to having champion level clearance, and Spider Man says, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! I am not joining the champions." I didn't even remember that. Yeah, I, 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 that that was always that was always kind of the thing that the champions were a joke. It's like, well, okay, their book didn't last that long, and you know, but but you know, the X Men were canceled at one point too, you know. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, there's plenty of series that were canceled prematurely, and and. You know, this this series, as we said, you know, this was an eclectic group to, to a great extent, with the exception of Angel and Iceman, who were you know, teammates since their inception. Uh, I think it needed it needed both quality writing and an audience. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and then, then it could have gone. And I think the writing was not bad. It's I think the writing for the most part in the series was probably average for the day. Yeah. I don't think it was bad. I don't think it, you know, I don't think there was anything, you know, any issue where you say, oh my God, this is a great issue. But I, I think it was, you know, it was fairly solid. I just think for whatever reason, it didn't have the audience to, to sustain it on the market. Mm-hmm. However, I don't know any of the sales marketing figures, but probably whatever issue came out that caused it to be canceled would make it like the number one or two book of right. now. <laughs> yeah. That's one of the, one of the great idiocies of this hobby. Uh, the the thing about the champions that I've always kind of thought, even doing my read through, is that it it lacks kind of that narrative pull through, you know. Um, the the elevator pitch for the Fantastic Four is oh they're a family and they're superheroes, you know. The 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 elevator pitch for the Avengers are Earth's mightiest heroes, you know. Uh, the X Men are you know they're sworn to protect the world that hates and fears them. What uh, what I've read from an interview with Tony Isabella is that he had intended the champions to be the heroes of the common man, but that he admits that he never quite got this across as well as he wanted. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that fits for Tony Isabella because when I think of Tony Isabella, I think of black lightning and black lightning was the hero of the people. That was his whole thing. You know, that, that's why Lightning turned down membership in the Justice League was he said, no, I can't be going off to fight stuff on other planets when I got stuff I got to be helping people here on Earth. So the idea of a, of a team of characters that were, you know, the champions of the common man, I think in especially what the kind of, um, you know, the what, what I call the urban surrealism stuff. And I talked about this. We talked about this on the Luke Cage episode that Marvel was doing in the Bronze Age. I think you could have made some hay with that, especially in Los Angeles where you've got such a diverse uh, a community and so many different areas in, in that area of, uh, of the country that you can tell stories in, uh, that I think you could have done some with it. But, you know, Isabella admits that, you know, and he didn't really succeed in making that the, 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 the through line of the series, which, you know, did, did a lot of action adventure type stories, typical kind of Bronze Age stuff, which is cool, but may not have had the emotional or narrative uh, oomph that he was going for when the original concept for the series was coming together. Yeah, no, that all definitely makes sense. I always saw them, and I think I mentioned this earlier as we were talking about it, I always saw them as similar to the Defenders in, I guess in a way that like there didn't seem to be a common commonality that would draw them together. Right. You know, the, the defenders always the big thing was they were a non-team. They just you know they they were together for this, but they really didn't want to be a team. They didn't want to have formal bylaws, all that kind of stuff. And while this team really did want to be a team, there didn't seem to be anything that really linked them all together to make them want to stay together. And yet they did anyway. And I guess that you know when you put it in that perspective, it's probably a weakness to the writing that that they didn't have that. And yet for me, that was one of the things that appealed to me about the team for some reason. Yeah. Cause just, just the eclectic nature of the group, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it always came back to Hercules and ghost rider to right. me, you know, that, that, that why, you know, they just don't seem to belong here, but <laughs> yet, they're, yet they're here. Right. Yeah. Ghost rider, especially cause he was, he was such a loner in his own book. It mm-hmm. suddenly he's palling around with the, the champions. What, what's what's funny is that you know what I, I've I've never really seen this this type of analysis, but really 
aren't the champions kind of the precursors of the West Coast Avengers? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the wackos were, they were the oddball group back in the day. You know, now eventually they, that they, the two teams got a little more uniform. But the old school West Coast Avengers, I mean, they were, you know, they, they were kind of a, a group of castoffs in a way. And, and that's kind of, uh, you know, that, that was also, that was what I like about like, especially these early issues that these are all people kind of looking for purpose. You know, they, they all, they, they come together cause they happen to all be at Berkeley, you know, because, uh, Angel and Iceman are, are enrolling in classes cause they're trying to move on with their lives post X-Men. Um, you know, uh, Tasha has just gotten out of this long, complicated relationship with Daredevil and she's looking to move on. And so all of them are kind of thrown together. And they're, they're heroes. They want to do the right thing. And so that, that's why they, they do it. And, and it's, it's, what's funny is that I've, um, is, is Marvel, I think wanted them to succeed because besides their own book, they also appeared within a very short span of time. They appeared in Godzilla, mm-hmm. uh, helping the shield fight Godzilla in San Francisco in a very, very cool issue that I, I, I covered on Earth destruction directive. They appeared in Iron Man annual number four, um, where, the basically they teamed up with Iron Man to go fight Modok and all his goons all across California, and was mostly I mean Iron Man's obviously the the main star, but the champions like are you know pretty much on equal footing for the entire second half of the annual, and there's one other book they appeared in too I forget which one it was where they basically all does right after they launched they appeared as a guest star in another book, so I think that Marvel really wanted this to be you know their next big team thing because they had just had success with relaunching the x-men you know so obviously they they felt that they could sustain it and then you know there was a lot of books like this not necessarily team books but you know that this was a great a time of great output from marvel as far as volume and trying new ideas and if some of them worked good if some didn't work okay well maybe we can figure something out with it and didn't yeah. i mean don't i mean angel and iceman both end up being defenders don't they i know iceman yes does. And, and, and along with the beast yeah, All three of them. <laughs> it's like when Reed Richards and Sue Storm are on the Avengers. It's like that's that's just, just surreal to me. Yeah, it's like, do you just want to write the Fantastic Four, Roger Stern? Is that what this is? I, mean, <laughs> I think like, that was Roger Stern. Wasn't but it? but having having Angel, Iceman, and the Beast in the in the Defenders, when they no longer fit in the X Men, made sense. Yeah, I never really got the whole Reed and Sue in the Avengers, other than. In the Fantastic Four, we want to do something a little different, so we're going to have them leave for a couple of months. Right. You know, that that's the only reason. And then since they left, it was like, well, what are we going to do with them? Eh, throw them in the Avengers for a couple <laughs> months. I, did, I really did. I think them being in the Avengers was more a byproduct of wanting them temporarily out of the Fantastic Four yes. than the other way around. Right. Because they're only there for a few months. It's it's them and Cap and Gilgamesh, isn't it? And that basically yes. the team? Yes, and I think there's somebody else too. Yeah, I think, I think we're leaving somebody else. There's one one other player. I don't even know who I, can, I can't which, remember. Which is that because Gilgamesh is the forgotten one. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, in any event, uh, just just real quick, uh, just just a couple of last art things. Page twenty three, which is the the second splash, which is Angel, Iceman, and Ghost Rider in vain trying to fight Hercules. Yes. Uh, that's just cool. I'm I'm sorry. I mean. Yeah, there's, you know, Angel's face is a little weird, and, you know, um, um, but, but I mean, I'm sorry, that's just cool, because that puts over, you've got, you know, Iceman is an Omega-level mutant, okay, 
the the Ghost Rider is one of the most powerful supernatural forces on Earth, and they can't do a thing to Hercules. That puts over all of them really well in this. That's so. It's one of those ones where it's like, wait, I'm glad you're on our side. Yeah. Of course, Angel's not doing anything. He's just yelling. Yeah, well, that's what Angel does a lot. He talks and runs his mouth, mainly. You know? I, mean, I remember reading some early issues of the X-Men, and, like, you know, they'd have in the thought balloons. I always felt superior to everybody else because I could fly. Really? Yeah. Really? Did, did you really feel superior? Because pretty much every one of these guys could kick your ass. See, I always, it, it made more sense when they would play up that I, he felt superior because he was rich. You yes. Know? <laughs> that would make more sense. And uh, and then the next um, the next page... Uh, which is actually the next uh, three pages after that is that's uh, the widow fighting Ivan and then, and then uh, taking out uh, uh, Dr. Lansing. She has just some great acrobatic martial arts here and, mm-hmm. and she looks really good. I mean, that's uh, again, I, I don't normally think of Tuska with this type of, of, of action. I think of him more like the, like, like the stuff on the previous page with the heavier hitters. Cause I think of him with Iron Man or Luke Cage but she is twirling all over the place, beating the crap out of both these guys. Yeah. And oh, yeah. It's yeah. a well, well-drawn sequence. I mean, the the sequence on page 27 where she uh, – it's it's all she, – she's moving in every panel, which I like. She's never static. Where she's leaping at him, and then she is – she's twisting around the girder out of the way of his gun. Then she does like a, a pirouette in the air and then like double roundhouse kicks him in the face. Like, which which yep. seems to me almost like the live-action Scarlett Johansson Black Widow. Yes, yes. And that's that's one of the things that I think is really cool, because you look at this and you can see how it would translate to, to live. Mm-hmm. And, and and much the same like that splash page. You can see uh, if, if by some, you know, if by some reason, although now that with Disney buying Fox, I guess you could do this now, right? They own all these characters rights again. You could see that cinematically of them pouring on the hellfire and the ice and Hercules walking through it, you know? Mm-hmm. So that, it's, yeah, I, that, I would like to see, I would like to see them put Hercules into the Marvel cinematic universe. Now. You know, frankly, after, after Thor Ragnarok, I don't see why he'd be a perfect fit from a tonal standpoint, you know? A guy you would, would play him up like they did uh, Aquaman in the Brave yes, and Bold exactly. He'd, he'd he'd be hilarious, but he wouldn't know it. <laughs> uh, you got you have any other any other uh, points you wanted to point out here? Well, we've gone through pretty much all my notes. The only thing I had left was I do like the little uh, the little byplay at the end between uh, Angel and uh, Hercules. Yeah, I like Hercules' outrage because it's just letting you know they don't just walk off and everything's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not okay. We've returned things to status quo. No, no, no. These people's lives have been ruined. Right. And Hercules is upset about that, and Angel realizes there's nothing you can do about it other than just keep on fighting. But let's acknowledge that, and they do, and I like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I always like Hercules gets in a funk like this because he's you know he's like he's angry or he's upset like about something and he and he's just he's yelling he's he's an emotive guy you know he's always emoting he's not subtle and and you're right angel shuts him down and it's a very typical marvel ending you know the 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 non-ending as marvel was known for doing especially in this time and then more so as i got into into comics reading stuff in the in the late 80s and 90s so yeah I, i do like the ending a lot and it's almost as if claremont understands the through line better than uh uh, you know, better than Isabella does. 
mm-hmm. you know, because he says to help those who can't help themselves, the innocents, the victims of people like Lansing, because the world still needs champions. It's yeah. like, there you go. Which, which goes to, which goes right to the uh, description that you gave it. Yeah. All right. So I think, uh, I think we've hit the point where we can rate this one. Yeah. You want to go so, first? Yeah, I can go first. So uh, cover, uh, I gave the cover a B. It, I really like this cover. Uh, the cover is by Rich Buckler, according to uh, Mike's Amazing World, and a uh, hat tip to Mike. I, that's where I got the release date information from as well. And uh, like I said, it's an action-packed cover. I didn't even really notice the all-white background until I was really looking at it. Everybody looks, everybody's showcased. Everybody looks good. All the costumes and everything are on display. Um, the 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 the, uh, the typeface for the champions to me was all always screams the mid seventies, so it's so perfectly appropriate for this team, you know, with the big mm-hmm. drop shadow on it and stuff. Um, so I give the I gave the cover a B. Um, the interior art, I, I, I was I, I was on the fence about whether I was going to go with uh, you know a minus or B plus because I really do like the art. I mean, I, I may be more prone just because I am a fan of Tusca. But even with even working with Coletta's inks, I think Tuska's uh, pencils really shine. I think he's got um, you know some really great action sequences. Of uh, there, there's some real nice uh, just just visual storytelling in the fights and some of the reaction shots and uh, uh, some of the faces. I mean, I, I always like Tuska's faces, so I, I gave this the uh, art a B plus. And then the story, um, it's not it's it's interesting in that it focuses primarily on only two of the team. So very early on in the book's history, we're getting a more in a, in a story that in a sense is a little more intimate because it doesn't focus fully on the entire team. It's really only uh, uh, Hercules and the black widow that are kind of the stars here. But I like, and, and, but I, but I like that because it gives an opportunity for them to interact a little bit together and not feel you have to cram everybody in, you know, and you, you can bring the others in at the end when you got to do the action beats. But for the story, We've got just two characters here. I think it's funny that this guy is apparently working to create the super soldier serum as all scientists were doing in the Marvel Bronze Age. <laughs> um, you got to hook him up over with, um, uh, with uh, what's his name over from Luke Cage and the two of them could probably compare notes. Oh yeah. Uh, Dr. Bernstein. That's it. Yes. Yes. Noah Bernstein. Noah Bernstein. And, uh, but uh, the story, I, 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 it's, you know, it's one of those ones where it's a, kind of a, I said, it's kind of a typical Marvel bronze age story in so far as it's, you know, somebody using somebody else. There's the ending doesn't tie things up in a neat bow. There's a, you know, there, there's a, some, some food for thought here as far as some of the subtext that Claremont goes for. So I gave the story a B and overall I gave the book a B plus. I think this was a, uh, for a series that has been, as I've been reading through it, has consistently been better than I think its reputation. I think this, as a standalone issue, was a lot of fun. I'm, I'm pretty much on board with you across the board. Uh, I, I'm giving it B pluses across the board. Uh, I really like the cover. It's got the action beats. The white background doesn't bother me at all because it's not just a stark white background and that's all. You know, they have the house there and there's, you know, it's, it's not... It, it's just a color choice more to me than than a uh, lack of detail, so I don't really have a problem with that at all in this one. Uh, in the interior art, I think this is I gotta say is as good as it gets. I think for for George Tuska, I think Coletta did a nice job with him on this. Vinny Coletta, and, and I still have to read. Scott got me a copy of that uh, 
tomorrow's book about Vinnie Coletta, and I need to sit down and read it because we're going to cover that one day. Uh, but I, I do think he was a talented artist. His problem comes from being willing to take shortcuts to get things done quickly. Yeah, right. It's not a lack of talent by any stretch of the imagination. I think he was a talented artist. I'm looking to, to like the, uh, on page six when they realize that uh, it's an old man that they're fighting, mm-hmm. and just just the looks on their faces. Uh, you know, it's very expressive in the in the issue. I think the combination of of Tuska and Coletta really works well here, uh, and with the exception of uh, what's in Lansing. You don't really see too much of the typical Tuska goon face. Uh, so, you know, that's one of the things I never liked about Tuska. So I, avoiding that made a big difference to me. Uh, this series was inconsistent with its art. I mean, we had Don Heck, we had George Tuska, eventually we get some John Byrne. Uh, very inconsistent as far as the tone of the artwork that we get. Uh, I agree with you that the shot that's splash page where they just can't stop Hercules is just an awesome shot uh, and and the action in it is great I, I, I'm tempted to give it an A minus but I'm going to stick with B plus on that the story I also agree there's a lot of a lot of things in there uh, a lot of emotions at play and and played well it's a done in one for the most part and uh, you know that those aren't easy to do and to have any kind of uh, weight to them and this does have that so. You know, B pluses across the board. Bravo to them for putting out a quality book. And uh, uh, you know, it's sad to me that the champions didn't get more love. Mm-hmm. You're here. So from there, we'll move on to our second book of the day, which is kind of a strange choice by me. Uh, it's uh, it's more more of a promotional book than a an actual book. It's only four pages long, and I think rather than synopsis, I'm just going to read it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, Godzilla versus Megalon. Here on Earth, undersea volcanic eruptions are common in the mid-Pacific region, but never has there been a disturbance quite like this. From the midst of the seething foment, a gigantic form slowly emerges, a ghastly sight, some freakish mutation. The colossal hell-spawned misanthropoid, fearfully known as Megalon. On a pair of blistered wings, Megalon takes to the sky, en route to the nearest civilized shore, for only there can he sate his energy hunger. Combined power of man's most advanced technology is no match for Megalon. Heedless, Megalon takes what he wants, oblivious to the pandemonium that he creates. But there is one last resort to fight the monster, with monster. Godzilla realizes that he stands little chance of subduing the boorish might of Megalon unassisted. Seeking help, he beckons across the wide seas to the super-keen electronic hearing of his friend and ally, Robot Man. By now, Megalon has acquired a partner in crime, the fiendish Boradan. Bravely, our hideous hero, I like that they say hideous hero, battles both of the foes alone. Robot Man arrives just in time of the battle is turned. Remember, when fight is monster against monster, the outcome is irrelevant because good will always triumph over evil. The end. Godzilla versus Megalon is coming soon to a theater near you. And that's the whole book. That's, that's the, the whole page story. Yep. Uh, <laughs> the story. I mean, it, it's a. It's a. Basically, it's an ad. It's a. a 
little teaser that they gave out, I guess, at movie theaters that were going to show yes. Godzilla vs. Megalon. Uh, the artwork in it is kind of stiff and dark and a little clunky, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, and the story is... There is no story. I mean, it's just no. kind of silly. You know, Godzilla calls to his friend. You know, it's just, <laughs> you know, it, it's it's got the the emotional depth of a Rankin and Bass cartoon. Um, you know, there's not not much here going on, to be honest with you. Yeah, and the the story behind this is a is to me a lot more interesting. So <laughs> that's why that's why I want to do this with you on. Okay, so for some background for those who may not know, Godzilla versus Megalon is known in Japanese as Gojure Time Megaro and was produced in 1973 and it was produced very very cheaply and very very quickly the mid the early to mid 70s were not kind to the Japanese film industry because television was taking off in Japan and so film budgets were way down because film attendance was way down and so this was this was one of the if not the cheapest the, the second cheapest produced of all the original Showa Godzilla films and was produced in about three weeks, which is a very quick turnaround for a suit, for a, sh- uh, a film that had two new monster suits in it, in Megalon and Jet Jaguar. Now, uh, Cinema Shares was an independent film releasing uh, uh, distribution group in the United States, and they had formed um, in the mid '70s, and they had released some. Uh, uh, they had released films like. Um, they did a few. I, th- I want to say they, they actually did some regional releasing of Texas Chainsaw Massacre or The Devil's Reign and Death Wish and some stuff like that. But they were getting these cheap films that were either regional or they were imports. And they got they, – they attained the rights to the previous Godzilla film, which was Godzilla vs. Gigan, and then the rights to Godzilla vs. Megalon in 1976. Now, this was the first one they released, and they went – all out balls to the wall insanely marketing this movie now uh, paul i am sure you have fond memories of the classic 1976 king kong poster oh yeah absolutely are you familiar with the u.s poster for godzilla versus megalon <laughs> no i'm not let me pull <laughs> it I up the feeling i'm going to be amused by it oh yes Oh, yes. Let me pull it up real quick, and I will send it to you. Um, but Cinema Shares, like I said, this was all happening in the summer of 76. So between the bicentennial and the election, uh, there was just nonstop uh, all these things, all these uh, little gimmicks and stuff that they did to hype up this thing. So like one story, I've got a fanzine here. The fanzine is called Monster. And it is this uh, particular issue was published in uh, November 2014. And they have a whole retrospective on cinema shares and the work that they did. Um, so uh, this one, they talk about how within uh, that they had in the summer of 1976 when they had the Democratic National Convention, within like minutes of Carter being announced to the candidate, they were and they had they were putting giving out buttons and uh, you know papering streets and stuff saying Godzilla for vice president. They had a motorcade of cars driving through Manhattan with, you know, you know, God, you know, vote for Godzilla, Godzilla for president. And they had a guy, a guy's a guy dressed in a Godzilla suit stumping for people on the street to go see Godzilla versus Megalon. <laughs> uh, they, they released buttons of all the four monsters in it. 
and uh, they they did, and then they did this comic. Now, real quick, let me send you the poster. I'll put this in the Skype window here. I can get my mouse to work. Here we go. So I'm sending that along. And tell me what you think of that poster. Not quite giving me what. Uh, look, I'm not seeing the whole thing here. Hold on, I'm opening it up. Wait, my internet is slow. I apologize. Because if what's what's showing up in the Skype window is very very limited here. I'm thinking it's not seeing that. I'm not. Well, I, I sent you can thing. you can click through. I sent it as a link. Yeah, I'm clicking and I'm waiting for it to open up in okay. a. Uh, in my internet window here. Come on, there we go. Okay. <laughs> okay, so just for, for people, the poster, the, the words on the poster say Giant Against Giant, the ultimate battle, Godzilla versus Megalon. And the image is each of the two creatures standing atop one of the Twin Towers, which looks to be very quickly drawn, you know, oh, not, yeah. not, not particularly good as far as perspective goes, uh, with helicopters and planes, you know, racing around them, fighting them, and, you know, firing at them. Uh, it, it is, honestly, with the exception of the actual Godzilla monster in it, uh, it's lacking a lot in the way of detail. Oh, yeah, but... Um, but that poster, just for reference, it's, it's total ripoff. Yeah. It's, it's complete. It's not only it, it's not only a total ripoff, but pardon my French, it's complete bullshit. Because not only do the monsters don't come anywhere near New York, they don't come anywhere near America. They don't come anywhere <laughs> near a city. They fight in an open field in this movie, because open fields are way cheaper to make than a city <laughs> model that gets destroyed. So. So, so, and and yeah, so just one of the many things that Cinema Shears did, and this comic was one of them. This little four-page, what was called a a uh, Herald comic. They, they they did a few of these in the '70s, not necessarily Cinema Shares, but uh, but th these these had shown up like um, back in the '50s. Invaders from Mars had one of these, um, which was I think a one sheet. Uh, mm -hmm. Then How to Make a Monster, which was um, uh, that, that was an AIP picture, did did something similar. But um, that this now this comic was written by I've got the name here. Where is it? It's yes, R. J. Wilson is who it's credited by, and Wilson apparently was a member of the Cinema Shares promo promotions department, and he has no other credits. Unsurprisingly, the the art is credited under the pseudonym of Swift Spear, and. Again, no one has any idea who this is. Probably again somebody that Cinema Shares either could get on the cheap, or uh, or just someone they knew, or something like that. If I, depending on you know how you want to figure out how they did this, um, there's the the this little four-page comic with as little story as it has. Godzilla versus Megalon has way more story than this, but the story isn't all that good. And only anything anyone remembers is the fight, so that's okay. But they get they get names wrong and details wrong in this comic that they handed out at the movie theater. You went in to go see the movie. <laughs> um, the the uh, Megalon does not come out of an undersea volca volcano. Um, he does come from the sea, but not from an undersea volcano. Godzilla's robot ally is not called Robot Man. He is called Jet Jaguar, which is the same name that he has in Japan. And Borodan is the, is the monster Gigan, 
who had just shown up in Japan a year before in Godzilla vs. Gigan and would show up two years later here in the States when Godzilla vs. Gigan was finally dubbed and released over here as Godzilla on Monster Island, also by CinemaShares. So, it, it's, it's, if you're a kid reading this, this doesn't, this doesn't even follow what you're about to see. So I don't, I, to me, it's always been just insane, this comic. And, uh, mm. yeah, it's the, the one, I will say, the one piece of art I do like is on the second page, which is the, the multi-panel splash of Megalon firing his uh, heat beam from his horn. Because I, I just like all the flames and everything. It looks very kind of op art. And the well, um, the flames like reflecting the pink on them. I like the fact that there's four panels that all show the same developing action. I like when yes. they do that in books, as long as they don't overdo it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like the fact that it uh, it kind of shows the passage of time without actually changing things, just by throwing a couple of vertical lines <laughs> in your image. Yes. Um, <laughs> Megalon looks almost bored, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as Tron there. Well, you know, he doesn't. He doesn't. He's a bug, so he doesn't have like a face that can express anything. Mm-hmm. Like his mandibles, uh, you can kind of make them out on uh, on that same panel. He's got big, chunky mandibles. I'm holding my hands up to my face. He looks kind. You know who ripped off his look? Bane from The Dark Knight Rises ripped off Megalon's faceplate. Okay, so he's got the big thing in front of his face. And the only thing they can do is open up to the side so he can shoot a fireball out of it. So he he can't really emote, you know, (laughs) Godzilla, Godzilla suits from this. You had to the faces weren't at this at this era. The faces weren't animated. So you could emote in broad suit acting as I'm waving my arms around uh, terms. But that's about it. And then neither and, and even that is a little bit hard because neither Megalon nor Gigan have hands, as you can see in this in this book. Uh, Megalon has drill bits for hands, and Gigan has hooks, so they can't they they can't even really emote that well with their hands. <laughs> um, yeah, this is this this is such a, a great relic. This is a one of those things that that old school Godzilla fans they're hard to track down because most of them were just destroyed. You know, nobody thought to save this. So these are relatively hard to find, and mm-hmm. I, like, I don't own one. I've had the scan forever of this, uh, probably since as long as I've been on the uh, the internet. I've had a scan of this thing because this was one that you could find on the early days of the Godzilla fandom. But it's it's so it's such a time capsule to an earlier age of movie marketing, of you know Cinema Shares, this little nothing company, buying up the rights to this film for next to nothing, and then spending all this money to market it, and then. You know, Godzilla vs. Megalon is held in very poor regard for many legitimate reasons. But it it is like the second most successful of the original Godzilla films in the U.S., specifically because of the efforts of CinemaShare to do all this marketing for it. And it the and in a, and and the, the part that why I was surprised that you hadn't seen it is that this was also the first Godzilla film to get a, to air on prime time in the United States. It aired on NBC and was hosted by uh, by uh, John Belushi wearing a mm-hmm. Godzilla costume. Mm-hmm. Well, this this would have been at a time when I was just starting high school. So yeah. I may have been out when this was on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's and oh, my gosh. And the and, and what's funny is that it's it's it's, you know, it's a standard length movie. It got cut down to run in an hour time slot on NBC in the summer of 77. 
It's uh, an it's hour? crazy. One hour. It was like forty-seven minutes running time. Wow. Yeah. It's and and so you know got, what? It's got the the narrative depth of this four-page comic then. There's like I said, there's a lot of story in this in this movie, but it doesn't really relate or amount to much. So you could just probably cut it down to just the action scenes, and you'd probably be okay. But <laughs> but it is so it's always. But the other thing that's odd about Godzilla vs. Megalon is that many because of cinema shares, the way that they did it and the way that they did their titles, this movie in the United States was in the public domain for years. You could find copies of Godzilla vs. Megalon, super cheap VHS and DVD copies for years and years and years because it was public domain. I have, I still have downstairs my old public domain VHS copy from when I was a kid, which is in this big oversized cardboard clamshell, and it's got incorrect information on it, and it's got the wrong picture, like it's got Mechagodzilla on the front instead of Megalon. So you know, Toho eventually reasserted their rights to the public do- to the copyright, so that it's no longer in the public domain. But it was just so common. You know, it was like you know, you had if you were a Godzilla fan growing up, you could find a copy of Megalon, and you probably owned it, and you probably watched it a bunch because it had you know three monsters and a giant robot all fighting for like forty five minutes straight at the end of it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's enough to pull most people in. I think. Oh yeah. <laughs> very much a kid's movie. Very much a kid's movie. And the annoying kid in this movie is one of the most annoying kids ever in any Japanese giant monster movie. And that is saying something. <laughs> no, I, th- I think just for uh, for the sake of uh, interest, what I'm going to do is on the this episode's artwork, I'm going to put the cover of Champions number four and I'm going to put the movie poster for yes. <laughs> Godzilla vs. Megalon. Because I, th- I think that's worth seeing. Yeah, uh, and any, anybody who has any interest in this actual four-page comic, just do an internet search. You'll find it really yeah. easy. You could just just do an internet image search, and you'll find all four pages of it. Right. Yeah. But uh, it, like I said, you you putting this in the when we were discussing uh, you know, back in the green room, and you mentioned this what you're doing, it just brought such a big smile to my face. Because like I said, this is and 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 again, this this is like we were talking earlier. This is all before I was born. So I learned about all this stuff after the fact, and it's just so charming. Probably because I wasn't there, you know. I probably, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm sure I would have eaten it up if I was a little kid in 1976. But it's just, it's so retro, it's so old-fashioned. The idea of, of doing a, you know, a, a four-pager, cheap-ass comic like this as your as your herald, and but you know, we haven't really gotten away with that because now big tentpole genre movies have comic book tie-ins. That get published, you know, either a prologue or a intermezzo or a side story, you know, and we we, uh, we got that with the legendary Godzilla, you know, legendary comics put out a a uh, a hardcover prologue to Godzilla 2014. They did the same thing with Pacific Rim. They're doing another an intermezzo book for before the, uh, in the months leading up to the release of Pacific Rim Uprising. You know, so we you look through previews any month, and you've got plenty of tie-in pro comics that exist primarily to get you to, hey, here's a comic you like the movie, buy this. So it's this, it's still all part of the same grand marketing scheme. Right. <laughs> None true. of them are clearly as high quality as this this piece of literature, though. So you know they <laughs> they don't have that going for them. <laughs> Oh man! <laughs> I guess this was this is just an example of hey, put it out there. They'll, they'll take the public will take anything. They're kids. What do they know? 
Yeah, that's, that's a lot of it. But, you know, to some extent, I guess, like you said, this was the uh, the highest uh, rated or highest uh, grossing. Yeah. For some time, so I guess, I guess there's some validity to that. But. One, one other thing I should mention, for fans of Mystery Science Theater 3000, of course, Godzilla vs. Megalon was featured in Season 2 of Godzilla, of Mystery Science Theater 3000, one of my all-time favorite episodes. Uh, has my favorite host segment of all time, which is the the crazy Orville Redenbacher one. Uh, but the film that it was on a double feature with by Cinema Shares was also featured on Misty, and that is the Giant Spider Invasion. And I don't know if you've ever seen that one with no, Alan Hale and Alan Hale and Barbara Hale and the big spiders that are you know the beta felt that are driving on top of a car. And <laughs> <laughs> That, that, that's a fun night at the movies. Giant Spider Invasion and Godzilla vs. Megalon. Sounds hilarious. That, that, that's, that's a couple of bucks well spent. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, for the sake of rating this one, I'm going to say use the movie poster as the cover. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rate it first, I think, and using the movie poster... I'm going to give the movie poster a B because it's just a hoot. Yes. I, I find it to be very, very amusing. So uh, it, it's worth giving giving some points just for that. The artwork for the four pages is muddy and amateurish looking. Uh, I'm going to – it tells the story. It, it almost it – almost, you know what it feels like? It feels like if you bought a Godzilla action figure, this is the comic book that would yes. come with it. Yes. <laughs> That's a great point. So it tells that story okay, so I'm not going to give it an F, but I'm going to give it a D plus. Yeah. <laughs> and the story is just, I mean, there's nothing, and it's silly, and it talks, it's dumbed down, you know, he calls his friend Robot Man uh, from across the, what is it, like, Across the sea, uh, yeah. I mean, with with his electronic hearing, uh, it, it's just terrible. So I'm, I'm going to give the story, the writing of this story, an F. <laughs> and and overall, I'll give the effort, since since it did uh, apparently increase the box office, I'm going to give the book a C minus. Yeah. Um, the the cover again, going with the the poster, the one sheet as the cover. Uh, yeah, that's that's so great. It's so shameless. And so brazen that you mm-hmm. got to applaud it. I mean, especially with the ubiquity, the absolute ubiquity of the Kong seventy six image at this point. Just, just to you know, it's like, yeah, what of it? Yeah, we're ripping you off. What are you going to do about it, Duel Rent? Just nothing, you know. <laughs> so right. uh, <laughs> you're over there in Italy. What are you going to do, man? So uh, uh, to me, that's an A. It's great. I, I would love a poster of that to go with my other Godzilla posters. Um, and, I, and I've seen it a few times, and I've been so I've been sorely tempted. Um, you know, you know what I would do is I wouldn't want to take up too much space on my wall with this, but I would t- I would get the uh, the King Kong poster art and this poster art, and I print them both up as like five by sevens. Yeah, and I get one of those frames that has spots for two five by seven pictures, put them side by side, and put it on the wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've I've done that a few times where I'll print something at eight and a, at, at eight and a half by eleven and trim it to fit by an eight by ten frame. I I without it all. In all seriousness, no joking, I have a framed 8x10 picture of 
uh, Lon Chaney Jr. as Karis up in my bonus room right now. <laughs> Karis the mummy. Um, but so that's today. Uh, as for the art on the, uh, the comic itself, um, I have to give it props, if only for showing Gigan using his eye laser, which he doesn't actually use in the movie. So at least they, you know, they, they knew he was supposed to have an eye laser. So, you know, that's, but yeah, th- this is, this is, this is pretty, pretty rough going even for, you know, a, uh, a little promo book. So to me, it, it's, it's a D, uh, the story, I don't, I don't know. Can we give an I, because there's not really a story here, you know, they didn't turn in their work, so it's hard to give them a grade. Well, uh, you're, you're the grader. You can <laughs> give it whatever you choose. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm going to give the, the story an I, because there is no story here. There's some words. Although, to be fair, the idea of Godzilla calling um, to Jet Jaguar across the sea is pretty far-fetched because in the movie, it's the other way around. Jet Jaguar calls Godzilla for help. So, come on, guys. Seriously. And, uh, you know, getting the names wrong is another thing. It's like, yeah, not yeah, just just uh, the, the writing is, is, is basically an F on this. Also, are they, are they on the first page, is he trying to say misanthropic and arthropoid and put, combine them into one word? misanthropoid yeah I I, <laughs> I I struggled with that a little bit and uh yeah I, I just wasn't sure how you added the poid to misanthropic <laughs> but uh but uh so but yeah. I, I you know I, I mean I I was able to uh ferret out the meaning I, I think you <laughs> gave it you gave it more thought than the guy from Cinema Shares that wrote it probably did. So <laughs> probably. Um, so so yeah. So I said uh, yeah, you know an A for the uh, A for the poster art, a D for the art, and an F for the writing. So that's an A plus average overall. This is amazing. I love it. Uh, now th- this is this is a this is a relic of a pastime. Uh, taken on on that level, it is great as a piece of Godzilla ephemera. Uh, as an actual comic, no, just, just no, uh, that this is, this is, uh, a C is being generous. And again, that's mostly because of the historical context of it, but what a, what a great goofy comic. It's <laughs> yeah, I gotta, I, I've I had gotta, a grin on my face the entire time we've been talking. This is fantastic. As have I. So this, this was fun. I'm, I'm glad I put out the call to you tonight and I'm glad you were able to, uh, to come on cause this, this was an enjoyable, I don't know how long it's going to cut down to, but uh, about two hours that we've been talking. Yeah. It's probably going to cut down to about an hour and a half when I clean it up. But uh, this was a lot of fun, and uh, thanks for mm-hmm. spending the time. Oh, thank you for having me. I, I always say that, that um, you know, Back to the Bins is, is, my, is my favorite show. It has been for a long time, partially because to me it's always educational. Because, you know, I'm, I'm not of the, um, uh, you know, really, really strong, in-depth knowledge of not only comics and stories, but of the creators that uh, folks like yourself and Scott Gardner are. And so I, I've always learned so much talking about these books that came up before I was born. But I always just always enjoyed the camaraderie and the, the, the banter between all you guys, and especially with Dr. Bill in there as well. I mean, cheese and rice, Dr. Bill and I, we had plans to do an episode of Back to the Bins with two books, and we only managed to do one like partially and then had a whole second episode of just us shooting the crap. So <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Uh, so any, and, and I, I'll always remember Scott's response to that because Bill, uh, Bill asked him, "Hey, did you listen to that episode I did with Luke?" He said, "I couldn't make heads or tails of any of it." <laughs> 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 it's like, yep, that that sounds about right. Probably pretty accurate. But so I'm always glad to uh, have an opportunity to come on back to the bins and and talk about uh, you know comics and it's uh, it's it's one of the great 
joys of this hobby for me is finding old neglected or just stuff that's obscure or odd or strange, you know? Uh, and, and so th that the, both are books to me satisfied that because the champions was such a book that lasted for such a relatively short amount of time and was looked down upon for so long. And then this amazing promo comic that, you know, I've, I'm willing to bet a lot of folks probably had never even heard of before listening to this episode. If you weren't a, a Godzilla fan or, or alive, maybe in 1976 to be being aware of it. So I, I want to thank you for having let me on because it's always a treat. And I always appreciate being asked. Well, there we go. So we're mutually happy that mm. yes. <laughs> that worked out well. And uh, everybody uh, listening, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. And uh, I'm just going to throw out the request because I every once in a while I like to do that. Uh, get us some iTunes reviews. Mm. Those that's what helps people to listen to us. And like uh, Luke and I were talking about earlier in the show, uh, as much as this is a labor of love, and as much as this is an opportunity for me to talk to my friends who I don't get to see. Uh, you know, there, there is a certain satisfaction in knowing that it's getting out to an audience. So if we get iTunes reviews, more people will listen, and that helps. Mm. So, but thanks a lot, everybody, and see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you, Luke. Oh, thank you, Paul. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Each and every month, the Two True Freaks Network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide. Sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available. Inquiries may be made via email to twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks. And we'll see you next week. Good night, Mr. Robinson. Nah, nah, nah.